subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Thank you to Next Evo for supporting Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. Try Next Evo natural capsules, gummies, mints, and topical creams. Get a better start to the year with products like their triple action CBD sleep. Go to nextevo.com slash podcast and use promo code Bigfoot to get 20% off your first order of $40 or more. Good morning, Cliff. Good morning, Bobo. How are you doing this morning? Uh, Pretty good. How's it going with you? Pretty good. Pretty good for the most part. Yeah, a um, little bit of weird snow coming down outside. Didn't expect that today. Snow? Yeah, a little bit. Just, you know, it's it's like kind of thinking about snowing a little bit. So little particles are coming down. There's no buildup or anything yet, but it's pretty cold, man. It's like 32 degrees outside and, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I'm down at Bart's house in Monterey. I was just sitting outside this morning in shorts and a t-shirt. No kidding. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, there's a cold north wind blowing, but I was like protected from the wind and sitting in the sun. Yeah. So it was, it felt, I was getting hot. So I got sweaty. <laughs> Man, go figure, go figure. And Bart's, Bart has a nice pad too. So it's good, a good place to lounge around for a couple of days. Oh yeah. All the hills are green. Like usually when I'm here, the hills are brown, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all lush green. It's, it's beautiful. Very good, man. Very good. Yeah. We're going to go Thurman down on the big Sur tonight, the next two nights. Rad. Good for you, man. Good for you. Yeah. I'm, I've got a Bigfoot trip on a Monday night. A friend of mine, he's a pilot, a member of the, the museum. He's coming by. Um, he, he has a long layover, I guess, in Portland, you know, in PDX. So he's going to come to the museum in the afternoon and hang out. And um, then after work, we're going to go to one of our spots we call the Willows. Uh, it's a big old chunk of uh, private land, um, pretty close to the Bull Run watershed. And um, there's been at least two visual sightings there. Um, the, all the houses in the neighborhood um, have had uh, weird stuff happen. Lots of interesting things. So he's going to bring a thermal drone down, and we're going to scan the whole area there because it seems like these guys uh, might have been in the neighborhood recently. Yeah, got some indications, some weird stuff at my house too, by the way. I mean, last night it, it was—it's probably a dog because that's what it sounded like. But a, a weird yippy dog sound um, occurred last night, like right outside the house. I took my therm out really fast and never, didn't see a dog, didn't see anything. Um, and you know, most likely it's a dog because that's what it sounded like. But I always got to wonder. Yippy. Like a, a yippy, like a yep, yep, sort of like dog like that. Not a, not a coyote? No, I don't, I don't think it was a coyote. I don't think it was a coyote. It might have been. We have a lot of those. And, you know, but um, the, the only reason I think that, well, I don't think it was a Sasquatch. You know, I'm going to say that right now. I think it was probably a dog because that's what it sounded like. But you never can tell. And then, see, the thing is, on Monday night, this past Monday, um, I was awakened in the middle of the night for something. I don't know what woke me up, but I heard what what sounded to me like like hands clapping you know like where the bedroom is in my house you know um i it sounded like it was coming like from the kitchen area but a little bit askew from there so not necessarily inside the house but maybe inside the house they're probably applauding your sexual performance <laughs> i suppose i was sleeping at the time um <laughs> so yeah yeah um but uh, uh i don't know i i heard two you know what sounded to me like hands clapping. Um, I told Melissa, and of course, I guess that's a, a theme in one of the scary movies that she likes to watch, you know, like one of these, 
you know, I don't know if it's one of the conjuring movies or something like that. I think it was, I think it was one of the conjuring movies. Um, but heard that on Monday night and that and the kind of like, huh, I don't know. Well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll add that to my list. Cause you know, I keep a journal list of all the peculiar things that have happened on my property over the years. Um, just like I would encourage anybody who lives next to BLM land or national forest land to do, because some of these weird things, most of the weird things are probably just, you know, normal things that you think are weird because of context or whatever, but some of those might be Bigfoot related. You just never know. And it's a uh, good, to t- good to keep track of those things. Uh, I encourage anybody with rural property to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And after a few years, you look back and you see like, it seems unrelated. You look at, Oh, well, it might've been different sounds, but they all occurred like during this two week period of May or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. You don't know the patterns until you have a few years under your belt. And, um, it, you know, then if you hear elk bugling at the wrong time of year, well, you go, well, maybe that's not an elk, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The, this past week, you've heard a couple of weird noises on the property. So, and generally speaking at the willows where we're going to go thermal droning on Monday night, um, generally speaking, if something is happening on my property or, you know, and I'm not saying it is, I, I really doubt this stuff is Bigfoot related, but I'm just taking note of it. Um, usually the willows goes off either a couple days before or a couple days after. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and, and vice versa, by the way, when stuff happens at the willows, because there's been great vocalizations this past year at the willows. There's been other indicators. We had, we had a class B sighting there, like not three or four weeks ago. Um, where one of the guys that we go out with, uh, saw what he, I mean, we were walking, I I wasn't there, but the, the, um, uh, my Nico was there and Keith was there. And so this guy was walking and then he, and then he stopped all of a sudden and they go, what, what, what? He goes, I I mean, I don't know what I just saw. That's kind of weird. He looks like an upright shadow moving. And then this is the general area where we think that they cross the road in the spent. So I don't know. There's been a lot of iffy things, a lot of maybes, um, going on lately. So we're going to go over Monday night and do some thermal droning at a place called the Willows. And of course, if you're a um, museum member, you know where you, you don't know where the Willows is because we keep that stuff secret. But um, you've heard of the Willows before. A lot of stuff goes on there, and we we write uh, our blogs for our museum members, and um, they hear about all the stuff that happens, and they've seen video of taken there and all that other stuff too. So, so that's kind of cool. You know that. Uh- Probable possible Sasquatch track on the, the tracks in the snow. I sent you the picture from the deputy out there in uh, East Humboldt. Uh, when when was this? When did you send it to me? About two weeks ago. About two weeks ago. Okay. What about him? Um, my partner on the film, Sam, uh, Sam Kitchen. He got a he got an email. Um, he has a little website like for uh, Northern California Facebook group, whatever. And he got an email from these uh, people wanting to know what they can do to deter Bigfoots off their property because they're they're having a big problem with them and they're freaked out. And it's like a mile from where their snow tracks or uh, pictures were taken. Well, um, I will say that one of the best ways to, <laughs> to, to, to deter Sasquatch stuff is to get a researcher out there. That's what I told them. They, they don't want to, they, 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 they won't t- he knows where the property is because he knows people that know who they are, but they won't tell him where it is. And they, they said they, don't, they do not want him there. They don't want anyone there. They don't want, they don't want, they just want to get rid of them. They want to know what to do to get rid of them. And he's like trying to beg him to say, no, no, please. I said, dude, just tell them that the best way to get rid of them is for you to show up with a thermal and skulk, skulk around there at night. Then they'll take off. Yeah. Try to try to get a picture of them and, and they won't last. Yeah. Well, I'll post this on the Patreon page so the Patreon listeners can take a look. Yeah, yeah. So any of our members will have access to this. And if you're interested in being a member, you do get extra content. 
Go to um, www.patreon.com slash Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast, and you can see all these sort of things that we put up, and you can get the extra episodes and all that sort of stuff, too. I think it's a pretty good deal. It's five bucks a month. It's not that bad. But um, anyway, yeah, so uh, there's stuff going on. There's Bigfoot stuff going on, as usual. Oh, and another uh, Bigfoot-related item, I guess, is uh, circulating right now. I'm so sorry, Bobo, but apparently you died again. I keep hearing I'm like Kenny from South Park. Yeah, you are like Kenny from South Park. <laughs> oh, you bastards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> never equated the two, but sure, sure. That's exactly right. You, you should be saying you bastards. The internet killed Bobo. Again, again. Yeah, I got a phone call. Um, Melissa got a bunch of people on uh, Facebook or something reaching out to her. You can't you can't get to me on Facebook. Uh, I had to turn all that stuff off. And the last thing I need is a, another way for people to reach me. There's already three or four emails out there for me and whatnot. There's plenty of ways for people to get a hold of me if you need me in Facebook. I just, oh, just the whole thing. I just can't stand it. But yeah, uh, rumor is that you're you're either dead again or still dead. Um, <laughs> do you have any reaction to that, Bobo? Well, that's why people refer to me as a Christ-like figure because I keep rising from the dead. <laughs> Every third day. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it, man. Every third day I hear about you dying again. Bobo's a real Christ-like figure. His actions? No, he keeps dying and coming back every third day. <laughs> right. Oh man. I know. I mean, I know I look like a walking corpse sometimes, but I'm not that bad. No, no, you're looking good, man. You lost all that weight. You're exercising and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's so funny. It's it, people assume that because you lost all that weight, um, and you started taking care of yourself and eating right, and you know, being re- adulting, that you're dying and dead. It's like we're all okay. Well, here's news, man. All of us are dying. We'll all be dead yeah. eventually, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Bobo is dying just like I'm dying and just like you're <laughs> dying too, listeners. But Bobo doesn't seem to be dead. But th- then again, you know, the conspiracy people listening, they're going to say, how do I know that's not, you know, somebody imitating? How do I know that's not Matt Pruitt imitating Bobo? How do I know that's not some other guy with brain damage? Yeah, you can clearly hear, hear the difference, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Oh, dude, I saw, I mean, I, I know we're kicking things around and just hanging out right now, but you know, that's part of the reason people listen to us, I think, just to hang out with us a little bit. I'd like to think that at least, because we are in a lot of people's cars on Monday morning right now, um, going to work with them. But uh, I got to the beach to see those those whales that that washed up. Plural? Days ago. Y- yeah. yeah where, where, the, the sperm whale, of course, is the one that hit the national news first, and that was uh, last weekend. And it was a 40-foot sperm whale. Uh, sperm whales are pretty rare. Um, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the water. When I was living in Southern California, I worked at all these fishing tackle stores, um, Angler's Tackle Box in Seal Beach, then uh, Fisherman's Hardware in Long Beach. And, you know, those, those are my first jobs. Um, so I spent a lot of time on the boats, fishing the islands and all that sort of stuff. And I've seen a lot of cool things out in the water. You know, I've seen mako sharks and threshers, and I've seen, you know, uh, lots of gray whales. I've seen, a, a, I think, a right whale one time. Yeah, yeah, just a humpback once. Yeah, I've seen a lot of neat things, but I've never seen a sperm whale. And so um, um, Melissa and I um, planned uh, to go to the beach to go check out this beached sperm whale. It was dead. A propeller hit it and it killed it out in the water. And I think it floated around a bit. Then these giant tides that we're experiencing in, here in Oregon, these king, king tides uh, washed it up on the beach. Um, and they're really high tides. Like the, the day we were there, it was like a 9.3 foot tide. And then uh, a couple of days later, it was supposed to be like 10 and a half feet or something. Ooh, that's about as high as it gets. Yeah. It's pretty nuts, man. That, that I was astonished at a high, at the watermark, you know, the high watermark. But um, so I, I cool. We're gonna go down there. On we went down there on Thursday. 
Well, Wednesday night, I checked the news. I, was, I always check the news or whatever. Oh, Sochi's barking. Sorry. Um, so uh, I checked the news. And then um, Wednesday night, apparently another whale washed up just 100 yards north of the other one. Jesus. Yeah. Now, now this one was a juvenile gray whale. It was a baby. It was only like 12 feet long. It was a tiny little emaciated thing. Um, almost certainly just didn't make it, you know, like one of those things. Cause there's quite a few gray whales now. In fact, I think, I think gray whales are now off of the endangered species list. I could be wrong about that. Well, they're, they're, not, they're, they've been off for a long time. They're, they're, the, they're the biggest, uh, most successful whale rebound in, uh, in the baleen family. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, yeah. So, well, it's a twofer, you know, you know, and in between, like, so there's a sperm whale on one side and and you can ask for a better spot for a whale to wash up if you want to go look at it because it was, you know, a hundred yards from the parking lot. You know, there's a, a, literally a parking lot right there. You know, I didn't have to walk like two and a half miles down the beach to see these things. Um, Hopefully they try to blow it up. (laughs) Well, that was back in the seventies. They did that. (laughs) Which was fantastic, by the way. Fantastic. There's a wonderful video on on uh, YouTube about it. Check it out if all of our listeners like blowing up a whale in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, just Google that blowing up whale in Oregon. It's awesome. It was on the low. It was it was blown up live on the news, and whale blubber went flying hundreds of yards. Yeah, like damaged cars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brainiac made that one up. Like, oh no, it'll just want to blow up and it'll disappear. Say, so, no, man, those pieces go somewhere. <laughs> you know, you can't like just make matter disappear like that. <laughs> and there's a lot of jokes going around right now about that too in the, the Oregon press, of course. Um, throwback to that. But yeah, I went down and checked out a sperm whale and a baby gray whale, and and um and it's right at this uh, really famous wreck. Um, called the the Iredale. Peter Iredale, I guess, is the name of this boat. It's a it, people would recognize it, I think, if you saw it. Um, it's a it's a huge boat, about a hundred years old, from what I understand. That's um, mostly buried in the sand, but part part of it is poking up. So, man, you can go down and you know go for the shipwreck and stay for the dead whales. I mean, the, the Oregon Beach has a lot to offer. Right <laughs> Celebrate maritime disasters. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and from the whales' perspective as well, because it got hit by the propeller. Is, uh, yeah, we, we, we can't even, well, not we, I used, I'm not a commercial fisherman anymore, but, um, you can't even put out, uh, crab pots now until the the gray whales are done passing. Cause they, like, I think nine of them got wrapped up in crab pots and died the last several years. So they, at least there's less whales dying that way. Well, that would explain the lack of uh, fresh crab in Astoria. Oh yeah. That's exactly why. And it was a bad year for meat quality. Like they were hollow, you know, they were pretty hollow until just real recent, anyways. So it kind of worked out. Yeah, we're kind of hoping to come back with some um, live crab to cook, but it didn't happen this time. So Bart's picking some up right now down at the docks from one of his cousins. Oh, really? Yeah. You gonna spend the night at Bart's again, or are you gonna go home today? No, no, I'm, I'm here for the next two nights. Oh, that's right. You're going to Bigfoot in the night. You've already said that. Sorry. Yeah, the next two nights we're gonna go Thurman down Big Sur. We got a couple spots to work. Oh, cool. All right. Well, anyway, Q&A, let's jump into this, okay? Yeah, I'm ready. So as usual, we have a, uh, we'll start off with a voicemail. I think we only have a handful of these because we just did a Q&A a few weeks ago. They haven't built up yet. Um, but we'll start out with a voicemail. And so, uh, Pruitt, hit us with the voicemail. Hey, Cliff and Bobo. Thank you so much for what you do and for putting on the podcast. I really enjoy being able to listen to you guys throughout my week. And so I just have a question for you. I think it's hopefully a fun question, but I'd be curious to know if you were to rank 
the states uh, in the United States based on their Sasquatch activity and their squatchiness, uh, what, how would you rank uh, the states of the United States from one to five? So what would be the best state, uh, your favorite state to squatch in, but also the state that has the most uh, squatch activity? Um, so rank those from one to five. But then also I'd be curious to know what are the states that have the least amount of Sasquatch activity or reports coming out of them? So if you had to rank the top five states to the top worst states of Squatch activity, uh, where would you rank them? Thank you so much. Worst state, Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, worst state is by far Hawaii with no credible sightings ever. Yeah, should we do the worst ones first? Yeah, worst first because it rhymes, if for no other reason. I would say Nevada maybe second. Yeah, yeah, because so little, I, I would agree with that. So we have Hawaii is first, uh, Nevada second, um, and that's because there's so little habitat, of course. The, 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 the best area, there, that's not to say there are no Sasquatches there. Well, there's some there. Oh, absolutely, because the Sierra Nevada Mountains, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and and I don't know about the White Mountains. What do you think about the White Mountains down there? You know, but uh, that, that or are those in California still? The, the White Mountains are, in, uh, they're down south on the, across the border in Arizona. Well, no, no, different white mountains. Like I'm thinking of the ones by uh, yeah. Okay, so these are in California. I'm, okay, because I'm thinking of the ones that uh, I went through on the way to um, Death Valley one time. I think there's a white mountains down there. If I if I'm I think anyway anyway. So yeah, Nevada definitely because there's just mostly desert. And then where? Well, oh oh, Delaware. Yeah, Delaware's got to be in there somewhere as well because um, there are some historic accounts from Delaware, but that's way back in the day. Now it seems that most of Delaware is pretty much paved. Yeah, they're, they got they got swamps though. They do have swamps, and I've gotten a few reports out of there. But I'd say maybe three in the last twenty years. Oh, really? And I'm also factoring in. I mean, well, I'm, I'm when you factor in how many square miles each state is, that's a then you, if you get into like percentages, then it's a whole different matter. If you're just going off number of reports, then the smallest states have a disadvantage for sure. Oh, they definitely have a disadvantage. Absolutely. And also um, something that we should probably, a conditional statement we should say, I guess, uh, is the best and worst are going to be largely dependent on the number of active researchers in the area. Yeah, I was going to say, because Alaska, Alaska's got, uh, there's so much open land there where no one's around. And I mean, just like Washington, I mean, who knows how many are in the interior of the Olympic Peninsula, you know, in the, in the mountain valleys back in there, there's, and there's no one there. Yeah, yeah, who knows, who knows. Now, um, I just looked up uh, Delaware on the BFRO, and I guess there's five reports or something like that, and and they're all from one county, Sussex County. So there's that. I'd probably throw in Kansas. Oh, yeah, Kansas is, isn't that great. Um, Southeast Kansas has some stuff abutted up to um, uh, um, Oklahoma, um, and, some, and, there, and some seem to squeak in there through the rivers and whatnot. I mean, we did a, a Finding Bigfoot episode in Kansas. We did find some credible witnesses with actually not just reports, not just stories. Um, that one woman had footprint photographs in the snow that looked very, very compelling to me. So I think that's, I think that's interesting. And, I, and what about uh, North Dakota? There's not a lot, but there is stuff up on the Canadian border. There's, a, there's like five pockets. I, I really looked into this when we were talking about doing an episode there. Uh, I was talking to Keith and Hamill about it, and I, so I did a deep dive into North Dakota because I had some contacts up there, and there there is some up there, but not a lot. I'd say I'd put Nebraska ahead of North Dakota. Yeah, and there's there's not a lot of people, and, and nobody researching it either. So yeah, maybe that that's part of it. So, but I, th- I think part of the reason people don't research in places is because there's, there's just not a lot of them there. Is part of the reason. 
Yeah, yeah, which also would bring to mind like Rhode Island or Connecticut or one of those places. Um, I I think I had the camping segment on both of those episodes, and there's habitat there. What is it? The is there something in Rhode Island, the Green Swamp or Big Swamp or something like that? Well, we we heard them when we were there when we filmed an episode of Rhode Island. We heard them. Yeah, there's there's not a lot, but it's a small state, not a lot of people doing stuff there. Um, and I think that's part of the reason there's so few reports. And I found it very frustrating to Bigfoot in Connecticut because most of it's private land. You know, even even on the um, camping segment segment of the Connecticut episode, I ended up going up into Massachusetts because there's a, a lack of land that I had access to. Massachusetts, I'm five for five on going there, squatching and hearing them, and I'm pretty sure I saw two of them. Two small ones, like human-sized ones at very close range that walked off in a crazy, like, I think it was 12 degrees that night, blowing 30-knot north winds. It was bitter, bitter cold. These two things, guys, whatever, cut down at, like, one in the morning, went down this steep hill with no lights through, like, you know, brambles and thorns and thick underbrush and went walked into the where the swamp is. And, you know, it's like chest-deep water out there, and they just... I didn't see him walk into it, but you could you could hear it a little bit. And there was the only there's the only place they could go that wasn't in view of the thermal. So these things presumably went out through the and, the, and their tracks went like were well, not tracks, but like the disturbances in the on the ground, like where you could tell someone had been walking, walked right straight into the swamp, on a, you know, below freezing night. Stress has a way of gaslighting you. It builds up in your tendons and joints in your mind. It can be very difficult to even notice that you're stressed out, kind of like the proverbial frog in a boiling cup of water or something, you know? One of the many signs of being kind of stressed out is frankly not sleeping as well. So perhaps you want to explore your full potential with a better night's sleep by using CBD with Next Evo Naturals. Nextevo Naturals is the most clinically studied CBD brand, and their smart sorb technology can help you get a better start to the year, including better sleep, with products like their triple action CBD Sleep. I've actually used this product. It's CBD with melatonin in it. Melatonin is taken quite often by people who are looking for a better night's sleep, and I think that the CBD just adds to it. This product, I mean, I'm telling you, it works for me. I, I suspect it would work for you. I do have trouble getting to sleep. It's hard to tell by listening to me because I'm cool and calm and collective all the time, but I'm kind of a stress case, man, and sleep does not come easy for me, and it never has. But this triple action CBD sleep actually helps me put myself down. It keeps me asleep. The next day, it feels like I just slept well, and for me, it's, it's kind of a godsend, frankly. Next Evo Naturals has products for less stress, better sleep, or a boost to just your general daily wellness. Triple Action CBD Sleep is a combination of smart sorb CBD to calm your mind, fast-acting melatonin to get you to fall asleep fast, and controlled-release melatonin so you can sleep longer and wake up refreshed. Next Evo Naturals are scientifically formulated by a consumer product team with decades of experience, and each product is tested to rigorous standards. Only Next Evo uses Smart Sorb CBD, proven for 30 times better absorption in the first 30 minutes. Make CBD a part of reaching your full potential with Next Evo Naturals. Go to nextevo.com slash podcast and use promo code BIGFOOT 
to get 20% off your first order of $40 or more. That's 20% off, $40 or more at nextevo.com slash podcast with the code Bigfoot. So yeah, those are the worst states. Um, so the worst states, the, the the ones with the least activity, or I don't know how you want to. I don't know. I don't remember how he worded it. But let's talk about the best states. Um, the the states that we would think are the best. And again, I want to condition this, this statement with, well, for me, it's going to be Oregon. I'm sure Bobo will say either Washington or you know Oregon or California. But it's going to come down to where the uh, researchers are doing the best work. You know, almost every time. You know, we could we could put Massachusetts on the list because of John Wilk. Um, so, but but what what are what are your thoughts, Bob? But what what do you want to start? I'd with? go. Um, I mean, I love California, Oregon, and th- those are definitely good spots to go. But for my money, if, if I had to take someone out to try to have an encounter, um, I'd take that whole Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Tennessee, West North Carolina, West Virginia, and Western Virginia, and then that Southern Ohio. It's smaller than California in total size, but it, it involves all five of those states, six of those states. So in that little pocket down there, the Appalachian states down there. Yeah. Yeah, it, they might be easier to find down there. Yeah, there's more access points. And there's less places for them to be because there's so many people. There's, there's, there's in, like, out west, there's huge tracts of land that, that were swallowed up by the government before they got, you know, didn't have generations of people living there. Whereas back there, they're like, you go to the National Forest, there's so many inholdings there. There's so many private properties in those in those boundaries like we're out west or isn't so much that you can there's roads everywhere. There's people to hear them, there's people to give you tips where they've heard stuff and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and you know, if you look look at Google Earth or something and you zoom in on a place like Pennsylvania, you know, South uh, Southwest Pennsylvania is very, very good. Um, and I think they're easier to find there. Than out here in Washington and Oregon and Northern California, because there's less less habitat for them to inhabit. And okay, well, there's there's the you, you look at a map of Oregon, like where I live, it's like they could be literally anywhere, just anywhere, um, because there's food, water, and cover no matter where you look. But out there in these pockets, well, okay, so you have a, a, a little patch of woods here, maybe five miles by three miles, you know, five miles long by three miles wide. And that's connected to all these other pockets about the same size by these green belts going through the river. Well, that narrows it down pretty dramatically. They're going to be in those big pockets or moving between them um, more, most of the time. Well, that, that, that really dramatically narrows down where they could be. And I think that's very, very helpful. And as you pointed out, and it's a, it's a really interesting, insightful thought, by the way, um, with all this private land holding around, there are all these people living there they will clue you into where they heard them or saw them recently. Whereas right now, like if I had to go anywhere here, like within a couple hours of my home here on the slopes of Mount Hood, it would be hard to choose because we haven't had a lot. Well, I mean, there's some, been some stuff nearby recently that we talked about at the top of the show here, but um, it'd be hard to choose where to go. I would just have to go to one of my spots that seems to produce fairly regularly. Um, I don't have any good recent intel, you know, uh, but back there in Kentucky and whatnot, you would probably have that. Right. That's how Tom Shea, I mean, he goes off, he, he's, he's got such a good network. He's lived there his whole life and it's a small community that he, he hears about most everything. Yeah. And he follows up on just about everything as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so yours, you'd say, well, let, let's actually put it in, let's, let's put these down. Maybe, maybe one isn't necessarily better than two or when two isn't necessarily better than three. So you're saying K- Kentucky, Tennessee. What else did you have? 
I said Western North, Car- Western North Carolina, West Virginia, Western Virginia, and then that Southeast uh, Ohio, South Ohio. That, and, if you, and if you took the area I'm talking about, it would all fit inside California boundaries, like square miles wise. Yeah, it's all kind of centered around like the Ohio River. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's six. He did ask for five, so you got a, you got an extra one in there. We'll throw that in for free. It still fits within that total of square miles would fit inside California. So you're saying is that is that one choice? I'm saying my one choice equals landmass wise. Even if I say six or seven, it's still going to fit inside California. Whereas you could say California, Oregon, Washington, and you're talking about way more territory. Or let's just call that the Bobo Republic. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, so that's the Bobo Republic. So that's the number one spot is Bobo Republic. Okay, so uh, what else do you have? Washington? It's got to be up there, right? Oh, yeah, Washington, Oregon. But, I mean, gee, I mean, you can't you can't look past, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas. Those places get tons of stuff, too. East Texas. Yeah, we got. I got a report last week, I think, and I sent it to you, a vocalization report from really close to where you saw those Sasquatches back a couple years ago. Yeah, like I think it was about... 10 or 12 miles away. Yeah, yeah, really, really close to all that, near the DuPont land. So, Oh, Alaska. Alaska has to be there, but God, how do you, how do you uh, narrow down Alaska? Whew, good luck. I mean, we found them there on an island. Yeah, on an island. And I think if you hug the coast, you'll probably be more successful than the interior, although they're certainly on the, in the interior as well. Yeah, Alaska. I mean, I, I guess when, when it's talking about what's the squatchiest states, it's, I'm, I'm kind of going off more of, where you're most likely, if I had to take someone out, like someone goes, dude, I got a week. Where are you going to take me where I have my best chance? Like, you know, some rich guy says, I'm going to, we can go wherever you want. Not including like having unlimited budget, but just, you know, if I, if they said, take me where to go, I'd go to, I'd go to Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, right in there. Yeah. Very likely. Well, you know, we could just uh, wipe all of these states off the list and say British Columbia. Definitely. The person who asked this question, we didn't didn't have a name. He didn't say his name. Um, he did say in the United States, so we can't we can't do British Columbia. That's why I didn't say it. Yeah, but but British Columbia, which of course I think is larger than California, Oregon, and Washington combined, hands down, hands down, British Columbia has to be probably the best spot in the world for Sasquatches. Yeah, or any any of the bipedal hominid cryptids or humanoid cryptids. But again, I, th- I think the if you're looking at the BFRO list or uh, sightings or evidence-wise, you have to look at where the best researchers are, the people who are out there um, with consistency, who are working hard to bring back evidence and learn about their area. I don't think that, I don't think that makes it the best because it just makes it the most known. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. Yeah, but Tom Shea's done a lot, and, um, and Charlie Raymond, too, to put the uh, Kentucky on the map. Oh, yeah, Charlie. Yeah, remember the early days of the Erickson Project? People were like, where, where's all the, where are these films coming from? Kentucky. They went, what? Even Bigfooters were saying, what? Kentucky? Yeah, like a half hour from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hey, I think we should probably give Maryland uh, um, uh, uh, an honorable mention for um, the least productive states. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the one. That's when you said Delaware, I was thinking like, yeah, Maryland's right there with them. Well, Moneymaker always said on the East Coast, like when he was talking like, you know, if you had a potential sponsor, like some rich New York business guy or something or someone connected in DC that, you know, he's trying to make contacts with uh, someone at BLM or department of interior. He'd, he'd go to that spot in Maryland right outside of DC was where he said the best place, most consistent he knew about on the East coast was there in Maryland. But it's just shut up. Sassy. Sassy. Sasquatch. Sassy. Sparks dog. Sparks dog. (laughs) I haven't heard you say shut up to a dog for a long time. 
I know. Or a bird. I miss Monkey and Sergio. Does it feel good to tell a dog to shut up? <laughs> Brought back some <laughs> memories. I didn't cuss at him, though. I didn't cuss at her. No, you did a good job, man. You did a good job. We're on the air, after all. Yeah. Yeah, but the Maryland, there's a swamp in Maryland that Moneymaker says there are Bigfoots in. I don't doubt it for a second. Um, I don't know where that is. I don't plan to go to Maryland, so it doesn't matter to me at this point. That little strip, the panhandle of Maryland that goes out jutting west, I mean, there's got to be stuff there because it's between freaking Pennsylvania and West Virginia. But I, I don't, you don't hear about it, though. BFRO has 35 reports from Maryland. I didn't know there was that many. I didn't know either. I didn't know. Anyway, yeah, so there's that. I, I, I That's probably a good answer for that question, don't you think? I'd say so. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to another one. Okay. This question isn't from just one individual. We get this question. It's one of the top five questions we get repeatedly, but it's what books would you recommend to a newcomer? Yeah. I, I get that question all the time in the museum as well. Um, and it depends. And my, I always respond to them. It's like, well, what are you actually interested in? Is, is the thing because there's a lot here. There's a lot in the subject of Bigfoot to, for people to explore. A large percentage of people who are interested in Bigfoot in general are mostly interested in stories, you know, because, yeah, humans are kind of a, a storytelling species, you know. Um, most of our history has been telling stories around a campfire, you know, 300,000 years or more of Homo sapiens being around. Most of our history has been around a campfire talking to one another. So we're kind of genetically programmed for that. Um, in a lot of ways. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, my go-to is the John Green book, Apes Among Us, because it, it's chock full. It has some um, old stories from the early days of Bigfooting, which I think is good for everybody to learn about. Um, you have to look into the history of Bigfoot if you want to be taken seriously in this game, just because you know we're standing on the shoulders of giants and you need to know who's shoulders were standing upon and what they did. And if you don't, you run into some dangers. Uh, there is, uh, there's, there have been people who have claimed to have discovered that there is a correlation between rainfall and Sasquatch sightings. And I'm thinking, well, God, John Green published that in the 1970s. But here in the 1990s and 2000s, people are saying that they just discovered that. It's like, well, if you had done your homework, you would have known that. So there's that. You know, So you have to know where you're coming from. But you know, if you're interested in the science of things, um, there are two books. I would start with uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum's book, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. Um, but really, Dr. Meldrum just took what um, Dr. Grover Krantz had written and expanded on it with his expertise and also the new, the new stuff that happened after Dr. Krantz had died in early 2000s. Um, Dr. Krantz's book, of course, is called uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence. So I, I think those are the go-to if you're interested in the science of the subject. If you're interested in the stories, then go to the John Green books. And there's a ton of other books that just are compilations of stories too. But John Green's, I think you should you should start there. In my opinion, for my money, if you want one book with a good overview of a lot of different things, like I have, I have to have one book on the subject to introduce me to the entire thing, I would probably go with The Essential Guide to Bigfoot by Ken Gerhardt. Yeah, that's a great beginner book. It is. It is. It's a general overview of the subject. He goes in a little bit of the science and all the other. And it, it, I think it's that is my go-to book. When people ask me, I'm just getting into this, and, and and they're not like specifically science oriented. Not like Ken doesn't do the science in there, but he gives a nice overview of all that stuff. The Essential Guide to Bigfoot uh, by Ken Gerhard. That's the go-to book for me, at least when I when people ask me that question. Yeah, I was going to say for um, the story ones. There's Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters by 
W.J. Sheehan. I know people like that one a lot. And then people also like the uh, Bigfoot Frightening Encounters. There's multiple volumes of that by Tom Lyons. People seem to enjoy those ones. But is that is that the first one you would mention if like a brand new person came in? Would that be the first the, the first book you would point them to? No, it'd still be John Green for the, for the encounters and stories. But after that, because a lot of people have read those already. Yeah, but an, a newcomer wouldn't have. Oh, that's true. And you know what we didn't we haven't mentioned that I think is a must read, and I think it's a must read for veteran Bigfooters as well. You sh- one should go back and revisit this book every couple of years. Um, is uh, Abominable Snowman: Legend Come to Life by Ivan Sanderson? That is yes, that is awesome. That is that's definitely on the top five. Yeah, and really, at first, he was criticized for having um, stories from various places on the planet, describing slightly different versions of hairy hominoids, not all Sasquatch stuff. You know, he's Yetis, and he mentions the Orang Pendek. It's one of the only books with the Orang Gadang mentioned, for example. Um, but now, I think it's kind of come, not not to come into fashion, because that makes it kind of flimsy. Fashion's a flimsy, ethereal sort of thing. But he's kind of uh, being, being vindicated. I think that's the word I'm looking for. He's being vindicated now with this idea put forth by Dr. Meldrum of relict hominoids all over the world. Um, And it's so interesting to go back into his book and see what he wrote back in the 1960s um, that has now come to fruition, that, that anthropology at the time rejected because they didn't have the right model for human evolution. Um, but now that we have, we know more about human evolution and then we're dialing in the theory of evolution better and better and better, like a lot of what he wrote is really making a lot of sense now, um, where it didn't make sense back then and everybody, all the anthropologists rejected what he wrote. Made sense to me. Oh, yeah, but you've always been ahead of your time. It's true. Yeah, you're, you're the vanguard of, of, of a lot of things. Thank you for recognizing, recognizing that, Cliff. You're welcome, Bubs. I'm on, I'm on Team Bubs. Right on. Yeah. So anyway, there. I think that's a decent answer for that book, or I mean, for the book question. We get that question an awful lot, uh, like every time, like every month, we get that question. So I, I hope that satisfies some of you. I hope you go out and buy those books. I will say that they're most of these are available at the NABC, but um, buy them from anywhere. I don't care where you get them. Just read them. Read them. Read books. Watch less television. Read books. I got to say, I haven't actually read those books I recommended from those other authors like Sheehan and Lyons, but I hear people talking about them and enjoy them. Yeah, there's a lot of great books out there. A lot of great books. And and some truly not great books as well. Yeah. And I'm a collector of both of them. (laughs) I like the really, really bad ones. (laughs) Yeah, there's something about those. Just like watching a really, really bad movie. There's something about those I enjoy as well. Yeah. So anyway, th- th- I think that's a good answer for those. Um, and we get, we get very often we get questions like that. You know, another kind of question we get all the time is what do you think about so-and-so, you know, this researcher, or that researcher and whatnot. And generally speaking, we're not going to answer those. Um, it's none of our business, what other people are doing. And if, and we're not going to say good or bad things about most people, um, unless we personally know them, you know, and hang out with them, you know, if, if we've met them once or twice or something, it's, who, who knows what the deal is. Because um, I hear lies and misinformation about me a fair amount. I'm dead. Oh, yeah, you're dead, for example. <laughs> <laughs> really, really good example. <laughs> yeah, most people don't know what in the world's going on. And, you know, if I don't know what these people are up to, we're not going to comment on them. And it's not really our place unless we have glowing reviews because they're our good friends. Right. Well, I've, I've said a few things, but Cliff and Sissica's edited it out. <laughs> I, I hope it does. I kind of count on Pruitt to make sure that we're 
we're, we're on the up with everybody. So, all right, let's move on to the written questions now, Bobo. Um, here, here's one from Jeremy LaJoyce. It says, hey guys, my question is more on the beyond side. What are your thoughts on the feral people of the Appalachian Mountains? There's been different accounts with hikers going missing and rangers bumping into weird stuff out there. I've listened to this podcast from day one. Keep up the great work. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. Nice, nice to hear kind words. Appreciate that. There's some weird people out there in, in, all, in all rural areas. Don't get me wrong. But uh, what, when I read this question, you know, what came to my mind is that witch from Kentucky that we ran across. Oh. Yeah, there's a hag out in Kentucky, like a true hag. No, Tennessee. Was it Tennessee? Oh, you're right. It was Tennessee. It was Tennessee. Is out there kind of by uh, Frozen Head. Is that right? Yep. She was the freakiest thing I've ever seen on the show when we were filming the show all over the world. That was the creepiest, most unnerving thing I saw. Describe it for us, Bubs. A 90-year-old woman shriveled up with black eyes. I didn't even see any whites in her eyes, just black eyes. And she pointed this this withered hand with fingers that looked like tree branch, like sticks with like little nodules and stuff on them. You know what I mean? Like, oh, and she just, she looked like she was wearing a witch outfit, like black shawl and just, and just emanating hatred and anger and evilness. Yeah. A true hag, you know, like eating children sort of hag, you know, and, and, uh, weren't, weren't we like making a, a U-turn in her driveway yeah. or something? We, we got, we got a lot when we pulled into their property and it looked like, it looked, it looked like those places like where junkyard car junkyard like some beat up old trailer houses and was it a gingerbread trailer <laughs> barking pit bulls you know like uh, underfed and mangy looking just but i'm sure she's a lovely woman if you meet her well we ran out of the house pointed uh, cast a spell pointed pointed her finger at you and cast a spell dude it did i swear she was casting a spell on us maybe that's where i picked that up picked what up that black cloud that hung on me oh you've kind of always had that bubs I don't want to get into that one where I got cursed at other time. Well, that, that would make a good Bobo story time. I don't know if I can tell it. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. All right. So, yeah. So, maybe that's maybe that's our thoughts on feral people of the Appalachian Mountains. Kind of uh, disperse and and loose but I, I hope that does it for you jeremy <laughs> yeah as far as i know the first reference like of the internet era like that kicked off this whole craze of feral people of the appalachians was because when dave polites interviewed that ranger about the dennis mars dennis martin missing child case he had mentioned that there was a disheveled looking almost homeless looking guy that was seen in the area by the falls um but i guess he got into a car so he wasn't too feral but that's that kind of kicked that one thing kicked off the whole that like all those you know rip off channels that try to copy Dave's missing four one one and they took that feral people thing and just ran with it and it expanded into this whole giant thing off that one thing Dave posted or wrote about or talked about. Yeah, it can't be too common. Otherwise, I think more people would be talking about it more frequently. Agreed. Well, all right. Well, let's go to the next question anyway. Your turn, Bobs. Chris Quintero. What do you think of the theory that the unofficial policy of the government is that Sasquatch remain a legend for the well-being of the creature, also because of fear of the chaos it would cause in enacting the Endangered Species Act if it would, were to be officially recognized? Well, I think if it's a, 
proven to be in the hominin line, I don't think that the Endangered Species Act would even apply because they'd be human. They wouldn't be classified as an animal. And I, I don't think that I don't think the government would, you know, as a goodwill gesture to the Sasquatch. I, I don't think there's any policy like that. Yeah, I don't think uh, anybody's well-being is really in the interest of the, the government right. for the most part. You know, um, part of but, economic chaos. That that's the, that's what they're concerned about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're worried about their donors and whatever else. Um, yeah, the economic chaos is probably what they're concerned about. If if there's even an unofficial policy, I don't think there is. Yeah, I don't think they care. It's you know. I think it's so compartmentalized and like need to know basis that like there might be like people involved in government that, you know, maybe a small little clique or something like upper level management, like that have that kind of philosophy or ethos on it. But yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's like some, like when you get up to a certain level, they go, all right, now you're in, you're in the fold. We're going to tell you the whole thing about Bigfoot, you know, and now you got to cover it up and this is what we do. This is how we keep it covered. And It's not their job. I, I suppose individuals care. Um, about Sasquatches, but it's really not their job for the most part. Um, even the wildlife people, their 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 job is to take care of the wildlife that's recognized, not the ones that aren't for the most part. You know, and how often do you go to your job and do a bunch of stuff that you're not paid to do? I don't. I just don't think it's their job, and they don't care for the most part. They'll, they'll worry. They'll worry about that when they have to. And for now, they're happy to not have to worry about it because of the economic chaos. So true. Yeah, and we've of course we've we've expanded upon that uh, in other previous episodes as well. But that's the short answer there, Chris. The, the Bigfoots are doing a really good job taking care of themselves. And then when you get the whole paranormal people on TV discrediting it and and giving conflicting stories and conflicting models, you know, this person says they're UFO related. This person says they're interdimensional. This person says that they're they're all these different sort of uh, perspectives on it. The Bigfooters and the Bigfoots themselves are doing a really good job making sure that nobody with any qualifications is really looking into it. There you go. How about the next question then? And uh, this one is from Mark Webster. Are there any reports of Sasquatch wearing pelts to keep warm in the colder climates? I've heard a few stories like that. Like, uh, yeah, I've ha- I have heard that from a few people. And there's old reports of like some of the in- Indian maidens being kidnapped and they reported like they in their cave, they had some hides. But I don't know because you got a tan of hide, you know, and stuff or else you just got rotten meat hanging on it and it'd be pretty nasty. Yeah, I, I've never heard of any reports of them wearing pelts. Um, I, I have heard of, of yeah, you know, again, these older reports from the 1800s. Sometimes they, uh, those giants or whatever, are are reported to be wearing furs of various sorts. But I think that's just a misidentification or uh, the kind of the telephone game where the what was described was interpreted different um, because these things look like they're wearing pelts because they are. They're wearing their own fur or their own hair. Apes don't have fur. They have hair. So um, I, I think that's probably what we're looking at. There have been a weird, uh, a very small number of reports of Sasquatches having some sort of clothing on of some sort. And people at first would go, oh, well, that's ridiculous. It's just a misidentification. But there are also re- observations of things like orangutans doing the same thing, you know, like mimicking us in some sort of way. So that's not off the table. I wouldn't say that um, a, a Sasquatch seen with like a, a towel over its head or a, a shirt or something like that. Um, and I think there was one of those in the um, in that Fifty Years of Bigfoot story or book, rather. Um, but yeah, that's not completely off the table. As unlikely as it is, 
it's there's a possibility because other ape species have been observed putting on or trying to put on or donning clothing of some sort. And even chimpanzees, I might point out, put accoutrements on themselves, like leaves or sticks behind their ears because they apparently they like the way it looks. Um, there's a study on that that was published a few years ago. Now you can look it up. Um, so it's not out of the question, though it's unlikely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of like uh, I remember there was a report up on outside of between Bend and Lapine up in Oregon on the 97 guys saw a Sasquatch with like a squeezed in. It was a smaller Sasquatch, you know, maybe six and a half, seven foot squeezed into an old ratty Raiders jacket that was like shredded that he was wearing. And then um, I talked to someone else that saw a big eight foot, like 600 pound male with a t-shirt pulled over its head and like, tried to pull it down but it was uh it was too small but it, it like ripped it ripped it open getting it, it over its head and it was like a, i guess it was an old tie-dye shirt and it was seen uh with that draped over him but i've heard a couple of things like that but not you know it's, it's definitely not common at all it's very uncommon yeah they probably don't need it i mean with their own um their own hair covering and also their size their size would indicate that they have very good uh, heat retention um, cause of Bergman's rule. So I, I think that, uh, they probably don't need that sort of stuff, which is, uh, a big difference between them and us for the most part. Humans need things to survive. We have a material culture and Sasquatches don't seem to have that. Uh, it's one of the big differentiators between our two species. So true. All right. Let's see what we got next here. Name, Jeremy message. Hey guys, do you think the data on juvenile Sasquatch footprints is small because people may pass them up thinking they are human because they are smaller? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that. I totally think that. In fact, there is a, uh, a lo- there's an area between, say, about eight or nine inches to about 12 or 13 inches that there are very few Sasquatch footprints in the data set. We have a fair number of smaller Sasquatch prints from about, oh, I don't know, three inches up to about eight or so. There's a fair number of those. Um, they're underrepresented, but they are in the data set and uh, from a variety of places. Um, but between say eight and about 13 inches, 12, 13 inches, there's very, very few. I mean, I'm talking less than three I'm at the, off the top of my head. I have to go check my, the data set out in the garage here, but, um, about three or less. And I think three is being generous. I can think of one off the top of my head. And it's probably because people would look at it and think it's human. Do you know who's writing a book on that right now? Sandy Nelson, who we had on the show. Really? Yeah, from up there in Washington. She's, uh, I know she's in contact with Jeff and she's uh, trying to figure out. The, the, um, well, she's working with such a small data set on how far she's going to get, but she's focusing on the growth rate of the footprints of the Sasquatch tracks, like people that have habituation sites or places they go where they, like um, my one spot up in the Redwoods, where over the years I found different sites. I, I can't, you know, I don't know for sure they're the same ones, but I'm assuming they're the same ones. Like it seemed like they grew about a, one and a quarter to one and a half inches a year The over the few years I was seeing them. You know, they went from like seven inches and then, you know, got bigger. Mm-hmm. Well, the water spot um, up there by Bluff Creek that you and I used to go to quite often, um, that first year that we had all that activity going on, we found prints down there. Was, they were underwater at the time. And at the time, I didn't know how to cast them. And uh, if I remember, they were, ten, they were about eight inches, if I remember right. And um, a couple years later, you know that log that the thing jumped out, like ran out in the log and jumped in the water? Um, I found a print right next to the log 
um, like right next to the log. And it was a bear getting in there, man. It was tough to get in there. Um, and the, that was, it was a time of the year when the water level had dropped a bit and there was a footprint right there. And it was about 10 inches long, plus a little bit of a, it, it was actually measured a little bit longer than that, but the, it, it was clear that the footprint had been made when it was still underwater. And then the water level dropped, so it was distorted in size and whatnot. So I'm guessing it was about 10 inches. And I think that was about three or four years later. So that's that. And I, I'm guessing those might be the same animals, you know, because it was the same spot. Um, but again, we don't really know. Like we always say, you know, when there's funding for this and there's every university has a research team working, you know, grad students working on it and that sort of stuff. It's going to be, I, that's one of the things I'm dying to know is how fast do they grow? Yeah, I mean, most of the other ape species mature at about ten years old, you know. So I, I think it's probably safe uh, to say that about sasquatches as well. Humans take a little bit longer um, because of, of brain size and whatnot. And it seems that all indication of sasquatches is that they don't have proportionally larger brains than um, they should. You know, like in humans, for example. You know, you can clearly see that in the shape of the head in that one composite photograph of the Patterson Gimlin film subject turning her head. Um, it's on Bill Munn's website, themunnsreport.com. Um, there's a wonderful composite photograph of, I don't know, I'm guessing like 40, 40 different frames of the same head turning slowly. Um, and you can see that uh, it, they don't have proportionally larger brains than they should for their body size. They have, a, they have an ape proportion brain. Um, yeah, there's probably more brain mass in there just because they're larger animals. But the larger the brain mass is, that's okay because it takes more brain mass to control a size of a body that big. Um, that doesn't mean that they're smarter in that sort of way. Yeah, they're smart and they're clever and they're way smarter than bears and all that sort of stuff. But they have, they, they, physically speaking, looking at their head, they don't have an intelligence that approaches humans. They just simply don't. Um, because humans have this big bulbous protrusion, like the, the front of our head, the forehead. It's like a big round part. And that's where most of the human stuff happens. Sasquatches do not have that. Um, it's it's actually remarkable. And Grover Krantz mentioned this in his book um, that we mentioned earlier in the thing, the Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence. Um, that when you look at the Patterson Gimlin film subjects, it's it's shocking almost at the retreating forehead right above the brow ridge. It's almost a ninety degree angle, and that means that they're they don't have that that development in that part of the brain. Um, I, I don't know that part of the brain off the top of my head. Frontal cortex, right? There you go. Okay, sure. I'll believe you because I don't know. Um, but uh, they don't have that. Um, and you can see that. You can physically see that in, the, in, those, um, in, in those frames. Um, so there's no reason to think they would have human intelligence like that. So therefore, getting back to the growth rate, it seems, that it, it seems reasonable to speculate that they probably mature somewhere around 8 to 12 years. That's what, that's what the uh, people, that, the habituators that you know, have spoken about it. They they all say that same thing, right? What you just said about the age 10 years old, they're getting like uh, the females are getting to be breeding age around eight or nine. Yeah. And you know, that's happening with humans to some degree too, with better nutrition and whatnot, but that's for different, different reasons there. But I guess getting back to the footprint question again, because uh, we got off on a tangent, although I think it's a worthwhile tangent to speak about. Um, getting back to the footprints, um, if you have a an 11-inch Human print and an 11-inch Sasquatch print. It would be very difficult to confuse the two. Sasquatch feet do not look very much like human feet. That's that's the you and me. The, the person not taking a hike, they would never notice. Yeah, they would never notice. It, exactly. For people who are well acquainted with the evidence, because Bobo, you are one of these rare, rare Bigfooters that actually has enough footprint evidence to make some generalizations. 
Um, you, you need to have a dozen or more, I think, footprints to even begin to start making generalizations about Sasquatch prints. And you probably have 40, I'm guessing. Um, uh, I don't know. But but if you have a human print next to a Bigfoot footprint of the same size, there, there'd be very little in common with the two. Um, the, the, and most people would just walk right by it and think, oh, there's a human print in the ground if they saw it at all. Um, and again, people who have been into the North American Bigfoot Center and asked me about this, I guarantee you, I've pointed to the wall. We have a footprint cast from Lori Jo Hamilton, another fantastic researcher. We have a footprint cast on the wall hanging there and it's for sale, but nobody ever buys it because it's not a pretty looking print. I mostly put it on the wall. I think I've sold one in the last three years that we, uh, that we padded up. Um, I put it on the wall as an instructional tool because, uh, I, people say, how come there aren't more blah, blah, blah prints and whatever. And this, I go, well, look at this beautiful print. And I point to the footprint cast on the wall and, and I look at the person, the, the customer and they, and generally speaking, nine times out of 10, there's a blank look on their face. Like what? That's a good looking footprint. I said, yeah, look at this. And I start outlining the heel and you can see four out of the five toes. Um, and then they go, oh yeah, that is a really good looking footprint. Um, and it is a beautiful footprint, um, but it's very shallow and very ambiguous to the untrained eye. And that's why most people walk right past these things. And um, just because they're a juvenile, like an 11 inch footprint um, would not would not mean that there's less padding on the plantar surface of the foot on the bottom of the foot when it comes in contact with the ground. That fat pad would be very, very thick, just like it is in adults um, and thicker than in humans of that same size. Um, and so leaving a footprint to begin with, um, that that would be noticed by an, the, your average hiker would be very difficult to do. I'm sure we. I'm sure we've both walked past Bigfoot tracks and just didn't even notice because we're like on a hiking trail or something. You know what I mean? Guaranteed, man. Like I've, I've tracked them and then lost them. You know, um, I've tracked Sasquatches and found four or five, six prints in a row, and then had no idea where they went afterwards. You know, guaranteed. Like guaranteed, I, we've we've both walked past things that we've totally missed in the ground. Yeah, I feel pretty confident in saying that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have great confidence in in my ineptitude. <laughs> <laughs> I got an overabundance of confidence in my incompetence, Cliff. <laughs> well, it, that's a good starting place. Um, it's, it's always people who think they know everything that um, have the most to learn, you know? And just by you and I saying that, like, yeah, we've got a lot to learn, makes me feel better about us. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we have time for one more question in our regular episode. And of course, if you want to have your question read on air, or if you want to hear your beautiful melodic voice on the air, you can go to our website, www.bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com, and then go to the contact button. And you can submit your question to us, and maybe we'll read it on the air and talk about it for a while. Or you can even leave a voicemail for us, and you can hear your voice on the air and Say whatever you like to us. Um, we love to get these things, and we, we and we love to talk about. We don't we don't get the questions beforehand. Um, Matt Pruitt kind of wrangles all these up for us, and so we're surprised by the questions as we read them on the air, and that's kind of a fun thing for us, kind of improvising as we go. So, um, if you want to throw something at us, by all means, do so. By all means, we love to do these episodes. At least I do. I think think, think I'm speaking for Bobo too. So anyway. Last question for this, uh, for February's Q&A. It comes from George, and it says, enjoy the show. Who is Ivan Marks, and why is he so controversial? Th th this is a good example of why we should go back and read the John Green books that we mentioned earlier. John Green actually has a whole chapter called Ivan, 
that talks about Ivan Marks and, and what a character he was. I usually hate hoaxers, like can't stand them, but he, he is a character and he was, he's a true outdoorsman, but yeah, he, he got involved in some shenanigans. Yeah. But in the early days, he had some real stuff as well. Yeah. Like Bosberg. Yeah. Bosberg. And of course that's where he started pulling the shenanigans as well. If, if the other researchers are to be believed and I, I happen to believe him. Um, yeah. Ivan Marks was an early Bigfooter back. I think he got interested right after the Jerry Crew stuff in 58. Um, and so ni- early 1960s, he was very, very active. Um, he was friends with all the researchers back in the day, you know, um, you know, Peter Byrne and John Green and uh, Roger Patterson and Dennis Jensen, all those guys, they all knew him. Um, he's probably most famous or he was most famous in those early days for the Bosberg footprints. He was one of the people who discovered him. He lived in Bosberg. He got wind of the footprints and went and found them. He's the guy who casts those um, handprints from the Bosberg incident back in 1970. I think the handprints were recovered, even though most, the, the bulk of the of the Bosberg stuff happened in December of 1969. Um, and then later on, uh, the handprints were discovered in 1970 or 71 in the same area. Um, and be, but he also faked a film of the Bosberg creature, um, at the time. And Peter Byrne is the person who discovered that it was fake. Well, I think, I think anyone that looked at it knew it was fake. Uh, well, you know, a lot of people believe some ridiculous things in my, you know, in Bigfoot land, even still, even still, like clearly fake suits are being believed. Um, and back then, when there was less data to judge that by, and certainly less professionally made Sasquatch suits, it was probably even harder to tell. Um, but Ivan Marks had a, had a suit um, that was used uh, in a series of documentaries um, as well. And you can see these, uh, you can get them online somewhere, I think. But yeah, he faked a film. He faked a film of the Bosberg animal uh, and uh, Peter Byrne busted it. It, w- it was not taken where he said it was taken, and it was not as large as he said it was, and it, it looked ridiculous to begin with. Um, it had a scrotum. That was pretty great. Had like a pointy head and a scrotum and big ears, and and he went on to fake a couple other films using that same suit. I think one was supposedly from Alaska, and I think another one was from California, if I remember right. But he had some real stuff too, and, and the handprints are an interesting segment in Ivan Mark's life as well, because there are two handprints that were recovered near Bosberg. And uh, Grover Krantz did an analysis of it, which was the first ever analysis of any Sasquatch handprint, um, published in Northwest Anthropological Research Notes, I believe. And, uh, and that's where we learned about the Sasquatch thumb being different. Um, and I do think that those handprints are real, by the way. Um, even though Ivan Marks was involved and he got them. And the reason I think that they were real is because a number of years ago, a couple collectors, a guy out in um, the, the Northeast and a guy in California, they were they were pooling their money and buying various Bigfoot collector things. And one person's selling some stuff off. The other guy's been trying to collect all the stuff. But they had a, they had a series of films that they bought from uh, Peter Byrne. And um, they bought basically Peter Byrne's 16 and 8 millimeter film collection. And they digitized it all. And then they reached out to me to say, hey, we have all this stuff. We don't really know what we're looking at. Can if, if we share this with you, can you, um, see what it is that we bought? And I did. And, and it's, it's a large, it's largely, um, the Bosberg stuff. It's, it seems that Peter was filming a lot of what he was doing out there. Um, and there's other things in there that Peter didn't film and technically didn't know, but he, you know, they just bought the celluloid copies or whatever. But, um, as far as Peter's intellectual property stuff goes, there seems to be a lot of stuff that Peter was filming at the time out in Bosberg, Washington. Um, 
So this had to be about 1970, because I think that's when Peter got on the scene there and started poking around. And um, in that series, there's a bunch of stuff, a bunch of things depicted in these uh, in, in these color films that were bought by these two gentlemen. But in there were were handprints in 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 the ground. And I, I was looking, I was going through the footage, and I said, "Oh, those are those are handprints." I said, "Wait a minute, those are." The, I'm almost certain that those are the Marks handprints the Ivan Marks handprints from the Bosberg. Since everything else was from Bosberg, it just made sense because they look just like it. They look just like the Bosberg handprints. They're kind of a big catcher's mitt sort of looking thing. Um, but which, which makes sense for the sandy sort of substrate they appear to be taken in. There, there were, I, I don't know, I'd have to go look at it again. I'm going to take a stab at it, maybe eight or 10 different handprints, both hands from this individual. But what no one had noticed in all those years of this film being out there um, in various collections, you know, Peter Burns collection, for example, when, and I don't think Peter took this film. I think that Ivan Marks took it the film. I'm not sure. But what no one had ever noticed is that next to a couple of these handprints were knuckle prints. And, um, and, and so oh, look at that. So I, I, I did some freeze framing and I zoomed in really close to the knuckle prints. And sure enough, there were five impressions all parallel to one another of the knuckles. Now you can't do that with your hand. You can't do that. If you do a knuckle print in the ground, there's going to be four parallel impressions for your, your index finger, middle finger, ring finger, and small finger. Um, your thumb will not and cannot bend that direction. But there they were in the ground. Now, mind you, this was the, these photographs had to be taken before Dr. Kranz analyzed the casts that came from this same location, right? It just, that's just logic. It just makes sense. But until Grover did his work and published that, that stuff, we didn't know that Sasquatch thumbs bent like that. And that has now been um, supported by a, a, a pretty good number of other handprints from other places and other times that their, their thumb doesn't bend like ours. Um, it bends more directly into the ground, just like the other fingers do. And if the thumb is parallel to the index finger, it will also bend directly into the ground. And uh, th there are probably a handful, no pun intended, of sighting reports that indicated Sasquatch has bent their thumb around in the same direction when they're holding something. There might, might have been a handful of those out there, but no one had ever uh, gotten a cast of a handprint before that, to my knowledge. Um, but yet there they were. There's a, there's a there's film of a knuckle print in the ground with five parallel impressions, one for each of the four fingers and the thumb. But no one knew that at that point. So I'm inclined to think that those handprints are the real deal based on that undiscovered piece of evidence. They're discovered. Well, at the time, nobody knew about it. And until these gentlemen gave me that film, no one knew this film existed. It had never been put out there. I was just giving you a shout out, Cliff. I was going to give you, I was going to give you a little baseball. Good eye, good eye, good eye. <laughs> right. Well, I appreciate that, folks. I, I, I appreciate kind words and encouragement. But yeah, <laughs> there, therefore, I, I think that the Ivan Mark stuff is, um, is real. You know, and I, I remember I gave this, I gave a presentation on handprints a number of years ago at a conference, and some uh, bigfooters and um, old time bigfooters in the audience. As soon as I said Ivan Marks and I included the handprint, they shut me down. They said, what? No, that can't, it's Ivan Marks, can't be real. But um, they did just kind of stop listening to my um, my logic there. They said, like, this is the time when Ivan Marks first started becoming not credible because of the film that had not been made yet at this point. Um, but I think those handprints are probably the real deal because no one knew about that then. They look good. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and since that time, um, handprints have been supporting this, you know, the, the Freeman handprints, the Tom Shea handprints, the David Bean handprints, all of these other handprints that are out there. The one from Missouri, I can, uh, that's an interesting handprint, same sort of thing. So anyway, Ivan Marks, he's controversial because it seems that he started hoaxing evidence. Um, according to Peter Byrne, he started hoaxing evidence and he kind of continued through the day. Well, who was it that went to his house? Was it not John Green? Uh, Someone went in his house, dude, and he had a floor, he had a hole cut in the floor of his living room, and he would hang deer in there and get them and let the scraps fall through the floorboards. And there was a bunch of dogs that lived under there that would just eat it. Like he's he's actually cleaning cleaning bucks in his living room. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I know that he was quite the character and quite the outdoorsman. He would go catch cougars. He'd catch them with his hands. I would have enjoyed him. Oh, yeah, he seemed to be quite the character. Yeah, like he, he would have some sort of adjective name. Like it would be Crazy Ivan or something if you knew him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I would love to see his collection. You know, I, I think Biscardi has it. Tom Biscardi owns all that stuff because he was doing stuff with the Ivan Marks family until not that long ago, um, maybe five or 10 years ago. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't really keep up on what Biscardi's up to. So, um, but I, I would love to see uh, the Ivan Marks collection at some point because it's out there. It exists. And that stuff does belong in a museum, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, just because there's fake stuff mixed in doesn't mean that it doesn't belong in a museum. It's no. part of the history of the subject. Right. Yeah, the the hoaxers are not as big a part, but they're a, they are a prominent part of Sasquatch uh history. I totally agree. Well, there you go. That wraps up another uh, Q&A episode. Yeah. We done did good. Well, I sure appreciate everybody's questions. And again, if you want to ask us something, feel free. You can ask us whatever you want. Um, go to bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com and then hit the contact button and you can either type away a question or you can leave us a voicemail or whatever you want. So you yeah, can check that out. It, it's, a, it's a good time for us and we appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a wrap, Cliff. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And especially thanks to all you Patreon listeners, supporters. We appreciate it. So if you want to get in on an extra 45 minutes to an hour a week of what you just heard, Cliff and the Bobes, go ahead and sign up on Patreon. It's only five bucks a month. And if you do, you'll be keeping it squatchy. And you know that's what you're supposed to do. It's a mandate. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 